Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Happy Saturday evening to you. I'm Lindsay Gensel filling in for Esme Murphy. If you listen during the week, you hear me on the Chad Hartman Show. I'm the producer who is forced to hang out with Chad, Adam Carter, and Dan Cook. No, I'm incredibly lucky to get to do that, and I feel incredibly lucky to get to be with you tonight. This is my first time hosting. So the first hour, we got all the the jitters, the nerves out. We laughed a lot during the second hour, and now we're going to slow it down a little bit and and get pretty serious. At 8.35, we're going to go to a reporter who was in Boston today. Blake Montgomery works for BuzzFeed News. He was actually in Charlottesville as well, so I'm really looking forward to getting some insight from someone who was on the ground in, in both Charlottesville, which was last Saturday, and then everything that took place today in Boston on the phone with us and a, a regular guest of Esme is Dave Schultz. He's a professor of law at Hamlin University. Dave, I have to ask you, and I know you've been doing this for a very long time. I have been working here at WCCO uh, almost two years. This news cycle is exhausting. Is there anything that you can compare it to? First off, I agree with you. I always, I always tell Esme that usually after an election, you know, we all can kind of take a big sigh and kind of relax and sort of you know, catch our breath, I feel like from election day, even right up to now, it's intense. And every day it seems to be an, another major news story. The closest that I can come up with at all, and it, it would have been when I was a little kid, probably would have been the Watergate era, you know, when all the stuff was unfolding back in the, you know, the 70s, or maybe even further back in the 60s, you know, during the height of the Vietnam War. But I just can't think of anything within, you know, my reasonable lifetime or what, any, any cycle, you know, you, know, you know, in the last decade or two decades that has been like what we've seen here. I don't know about you, what your thoughts are. Uh, well, I'm 31 years old, and I actually, one of the first news stories that I really remember from start to finish was actually uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay. And I remember waking up that morning and going up into my mother's room, and the TV was on, and I remember how emotional she was about it, and so I knew something serious had happened. Mm-hmm. And that's not my first memory by any by any means, but that's one of the first start-to-finish things that, that I, I can remember. And so, I mean, in all honesty— Working in news, you you can't turn off your phone. Mm-hmm. I was on vacation last weekend, and I knew I knew what was unfolding in Charlottesville on Friday night, and then I was paying attention on Saturday. I think there was one afternoon where I, oh, it was a uh, uh, when he fired Comey from the FBI. Right. I had taken a nap after work. I woke up and like the internet had exploded. Yes, y- you can't turn it off. No, you're absolutely right. I was going to say yesterday. What was it in the morning? Um, I did a I, I, I did a training seminar for three hours. I was kind of blacked out for like three hours, and then I, I finish. I turn on my phone and Steve Bannon's been fired. You know, and it's like my gosh, literally, you, you, you almost like you you can't go to sleep, can't turn off your phone, you know, can't go grab a sandwich because so, something new is happening in the news cycle, and and we're going to continue to see that because I think one of the characteristics of the um, 
of the Trump era, if I can call it that. You know, Donald Trump merges with the social media, and Trump has become um, a, a, a constant 24-7 social media news story. And, it, and that, that might have been the case anyhow, but now add into it all the things that are happening in his administration. And it is. It is a nonstop stream of news. And I think the hard part is always to figure out, you know, what's the most salient, what's the most important thing to be talking about um, at any given point because there's just so much hitting you. You wrote today on your blog, The Lessons of Charlottesville, Must We Be Tolerant of the Intolerant? And I want to get to that, but I want to stick with Steve Bannon because it seems like this White House is fairly volatile. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of people come. We've seen a lot of people go. Letting Steve Bannon go was for a lot of people a big step because there were a lot of people who didn't think he had any any means to be in the White House. He's got some viewpoints on um, certain racial groups, on certain religious groups that I can personally say I don't agree with. Right. Uh, he's got some connections, obviously, with Breitbart News. He's said some things. Do you see a, a, a change in the tides, so to speak, now that he is gone and it seems like what the plan was with bringing in Kelly – that this might be the, the, the right path we're finally on? Well, the, the simple answer is perhaps, because you're right. If this is a consequence of bringing in the new chief of staff, um, Kelly, who's trying to bring more discipline to the White House, um, then this is a good move. Because I think one of the things that's been characteristic of the Trump, Trump presidency so far, it seems like everybody's a free agent, and, and there's sort of no coordination going on in terms of, you have Ben going into one direction, you had you know, Ryan's Priebus going in another, you had Scaramucci going in another direction. Everybody seemed to be sort of you know, flailing their own direction, and nothing was holding the administration together in terms of a, a common message or a common focus. Now the question becomes, um, is Kelly able to bring this order together? Or there's also some people who are saying that the problem isn't so much you know, who the chief of staff is or with the free agents, but it starts at the top, that, that Trump himself is not disciplined. And that's true. And so this is an, inter- so it's an interesting question we're going to be looking at now. To what extent you know, is this a sign of, of, a, of an increased discipline and message? And if it means anything this week, I'm not sure it does, because Think about, you know, some people say that a picture, you know, speaks a thousand words. You know, Monday, you know, Trump gives that speech where he denounces the white supremacists, neo-Nazis, etc., the Klan, and then on Tuesday he recants on that. Did you see the picture of, of what um, Chief of Staff Kelly's face looked like during that press conference? He was so embarrassed. He was, I mean, it was like when you... Your parents are ashamed of you. I mean, it it really was. He stood back there. And and the thing that I found so interesting about that is is normally when you're a public figure, you learn how to mask your face, how to be in public. And if you're not having a good time, you still, you know, it's like when you get dragged along somewhere you don't want to be, you still put a smile on your face. (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. I was going to say, you know, I worked, I worked, I worked in government, you know, back in New York from originally, and there would be days that you would have to talk about something, or you'd be, at, I'd be at a press conference, and you would just go stone faced, you know, or you'd put on the best professional smile, or or whatever it is, because you knew you had to get through it. And I looked at that at Kelly, and I thought to myself at one level. Um, He's going to resign. You know, I just, just you know, I don't, I don't know if he's going to or not. You know, he might get, he might stick out. He might get frustrated. But that, but for a minute there, I looked at it and said, 
I think he's just going to throw it, throw in the towel at this point um, in terms of it. And so it fits into my point here is that is Kelly going to be able to bring discipline? Is getting Bannon um, out going to be enough to, um, um, to, um, to, be, to, to create discipline and bring Kelly in? Or are th- other things going to still sort of pull the administration in lots of different ways? We don't know. But I think people should also keep in mind what's going to be fascinating to watch now is now that Bannon is back with Breitbart News, to what extent is Breitbart News now either going to be supporting the Trump administration um, or are they going to be critical in going after in terms of what's happening? I don't know what's going to happen in terms of That's a fascinating question. It is. And and yesterday when the, the news was announced, um, when I was on with the, the Chad Hartman show and we were you know reacting to the the push out of Steve Bannon and the idea he was going to go back to Breitbart and it, it's kind of what I refer to it as is when you you get dumped by someone and you spend those first couple weeks being really sad and then you go out and you go to the gym mm-hmm. and you start working out and you maybe get a haircut or mm-hmm. start wearing better clothes because you want to run into that person it, it's this what in pop culture they call the revenge body. You yeah. know, you're going to go out and be the best version of yourself. And so will Steve Bannon go that route and show Trump, in a sense, what he's missing? Mm-hmm. Or is he going to still push his agenda but do it with the power of Breitbart News? And that's a good question because we know that that partly the ouster of Bannon was the interview he did with the American Prospect, you know, which is actually interesting. That's kind of a, a, a liberal um, you know, magazine in which he was very critical of where Trump was going in terms of issues of North Korea, um, in terms of China, and so forth. And so what I wonder, if, if we're going to see um, um, Breitbart News and, and with Bannon there trying to pull pull uh, the the Trump administration back further to the right by criticizing the 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 moderates and the, and the John Kellys of the world um, or again or is it going to be a different direction I don't know and I, I think it's an interesting point you made here I hadn't thought about it in terms of sort of the analogy of breaking up with your ex or something like that because I will be curious to see what they what what Breitbart says about Kelly about um, um, the the Trump handling of of trade talks with NAFTA or with China, um, all these are are just fascinating things to think about, and whether or not now Bannon will be more effective on the outside as opposed to being in the inside, where it's just not clear how effective he has been, and it looks like he's been marginalized for at least several weeks. We had Joshua Green. Uh, he's an author who wrote a book about Steve Bannon uh, during the election. We had him on with Chad a couple of weeks ago, and I heard earlier on CBS News on the national side uh, that he said he spoke to Steve Bannon right after he left the White House, and, and Bannon made it seem like he was going to go and, and use uh, his newfound power uh, to push the Trump agenda. But again, I mean, as we've seen with this administration, everyone involved in it, they can say one thing and, and easily do another. Exactly. And also we know that Trump himself has exceedingly thin skin. And to what extent is is Breitbart News or Breitbart News and Bannon, when they're trying to push the Trump agenda, again, how much will they be critical of Trump himself um, or his administration? And then how will you know Trump react? I mean, I'm thinking in terms of the fact that you know, that you would think that there would be a natural, um, what I'm looking for, cooperation or affinity between, let's say, National Fox News and Trump, and he, and, and they've gone to war several times. And, and 
And I would expect that we're going to see something similar to that with Breitbart, um, with Breitbart News and Steve Bannon there, that at some point they're going to say something and Trump's going to lash out at him because he, Bannon is now an ex, somebody that he's, he's fired. And I just don't see Trump sort of being the better angel in terms of saying, I thank you for your service, good job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I can see him being going after his enemies or perceived enemies as he's done for the first, what, seven months in office. And Steve Bannon's been inside that White House. He knows more than anyone. I mean, in all honesty, he's had the president behind closed doors for how many months? Yeah, he has. And he's been, and, I mean, his title was White House strategist, which means he's the one who's been consulted, you know, on lots of, um, I, I would assume, although we'll find this out, on uh, lots of the media strategy and so forth like that. So he may know the pressure points for what to push in the Trump administration in terms of where to go, what to say, who to go after. And again, I'm still curious to see to what extent, again, going back to your ex analogy here, will he try to sort of be, you know, you know, you know, be the better person or will it be kind of the, um, um, getting even with the ex and getting even with all the people in the White House that he perceived as undermining the, the, the Trump agenda? I'm going to let you use that analogy for free from here on out. I won't even make you attribute it to me. I love that. I, 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 love, I love the analogy. I just never thought about that before. It's a perfect one. Well, there you go. Uh, Dave Schultz is with us. He's a professor of law at Hamlin University. We're going to take a quick break here. I want to get his thoughts on uh, the reaction to Trump backpedaling and basically blaming both sides on Charlottesville. A lot of Republicans came out against the president in that. And then on Dave's blog today, he wrote about Charlottesville itself. We're going to get to both of those when we get back here on WCCO Radio. An absolutely gorgeous Saturday in Minnesota, a top 10 weather day. The WCCO Weather Watcher is glowing gold tonight because it's just been a perfect day. Dave Schultz is my guest this evening. He's a regular guest of Esme. Of course, I'm not Esme Murphy. I'm Lindsay Gensel. I'm filling in for her tonight. Very blessed to be stepping into some very big shoes this evening. We were just talking about Steve Bannon being pushed out of the White House and and the reaction to that. And I, I wanted to backtrack a little bit because I feel like, and we both said this, the news cycle is just exhausting. And this week was incredibly busy. Last Saturday was Charlottesville and we all reacted to that. And then the president came out and, and he condemned the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists. And, and then the next day when he was supposed to be talking about infrastructure, the press conference took a turn, and, and he basically blamed both sides for the violence. And a lot of Republican leaders came out against the president, whether they did it on television, on social media, uh, through a press release. And, and I want to get your, your, your input on that, Dave, because in all honesty, so since President Trump took office, there have been a lot of things that have been controversial that he has done that people have reacted to. And it's been pretty hard to get Republicans to come out against him. And Charlottesville was very different. It was. And, and, and we should point out, it wasn't just Republicans who broke with him on this one. It was also major business leaders across the United States. I mean, this, this was a pretty significant repudiation of Donald Trump's approach this week. And I think if there's one silver lining in everything that happened this week, is that think about the broad... I'd say public support there was for the idea that, guess what, um, that neo-Nazis, uh, fascists, white on the Klan, they're bad people. But at the end of the day, what I saw here, if I can find a silver lining, was broad support for the idea that prejudice uh, discrimination is wrong. And they were looking to the President of the United States to say that also. 
And at the end of the day, you know, he, he flip-flopped on that. And that's something that you, you don't expect presidents to do. I mean, you expect presidents to be, you know, the moral leaders, the ethical leaders of the United States. And Trump lost it on that. And I think the Republicans are very worried because I think even at the end of the day, um, they, they do support, you know, civil rights. They support non-discrimination. I mean, they, they have embraced, you know, reforms that have have gone back, what, nearly 60 years since the beginning of the Civil Rights Revolution. So Trump, I think, is incredibly isolated right now, and I think it makes it even harder for him to move his political agenda when it was already near impossible for him to do that um, because of what he's done in terms of attacking Mitch McConnell um, and a whole bunch of other things also. You write a great blog for Hamlin University called Schultz's Take, and today you wrote about Charlottesville. The uh, title of the blog is The Lessons of Charlottesville, Must We Be Tolerant of the Intolerant? And the idea of what is protected by the First Amendment. I know the ACLU this week has really been challenged on the idea of what is the difference between free speech and hate speech, and, and to what level are they going to go to defend people who are open users of, of hate speech. And and so I want to know what your takeaway was from last weekend's events. Well, first up, let me just sort of explain whether I endorse it or not is a different story entirely. But what the Supreme Court has said is that the line in terms of what's defined as free speech is that you're allowed to advocate whatever you want until such point as that, and that's protected as free speech, until such point as what you're advocating um, is, is imminent violence and that violence is imminent. And so, so if I want to say, for example, um, that I, I think um, we, we, we ought to have an armed revolution to overturn the United States, that's protected. But if it's at that point where right at the edge where I am now getting ready to actually commit that violence, the court has said that speech is no longer protected. It's no longer protected speech. We've crossed over into something else. And so assuming I have most of the facts in place here, um, a large or at least a portion of what happened last weekend crossed that line from protected free speech into something that could be prosecuted as violence. It clearly, you know, the point where people are now, um, um, you know, hitting people with cars, um, beating people up, et cetera, et cetera, that's clearly crossed the line. But I just want to mention this because because the Supreme Court has said that we are going to, as a society, um, cut incredible amount of slack and not crack down on what people say until such point as it crosses crosses that line. And and that's what I was trying to write about today, is that from a legal point of view, we don't want the government um, um, censoring speech. But at the same time, what I was trying to talk about is that there's what the government can do, and then there's also a question of, of whether we as individuals have to be tolerant or intoler- of the intolerant. And there's nothing that prevents us in our private lives from saying that I'm going to condemn, I'm going to shun, I'm going to disavow people who are neo-Nazis, racists, and so forth like that. So it's important to understand those differences. But there are some circumstances where I do think we have to listen. We do have to listen to those people, not because we like what they have to say, but because to simply censor them isn't going to get rid of racism. We have to listen and have to respond with speech to be able to challenge and refute what they have to say. 
A little over a minute left with our guest this evening, Dave Schultz, professor of law at Hamlin University. We we saw a lot of backlash this week uh, from people who attended the rally in Charlottesville. They were identified on social media. Many of them lost their jobs. A lot of them uh, not, not recanted, but apologized on social media, said that, you know, their behavior at Charlottesville isn't actually who they who they really are in, in real life. But a lot of people, in all honesty, lost jobs or were pushed out of schools. And there's this question, you know, all right, you have the right to free speech. But as an employer, I also have the right to decide whether in my my place of work. Exactly. What people don't understand is unless you work for the government, the First Amendment does not apply to the private workplace. And yes, your your employer can't fire you because of your race, your religion, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. But your employer can say, I don't agree with your political message. You're out of here. Scary stuff. And of course, uh, it doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon. It doesn't seem like that at all. And in fact, I suspect that given what's happened in Boston today, we're going to see this story just continue to escalate as well as more monuments come across the, come down across the United States. Dave, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Anytime. Thank you very much. 8.30 on a Saturday night. So we talked a little bit about Charlottesville there. Our next guest was there. His name's Blake Montgomery. He's a reporter for BuzzFeed News. I found him today because he was tweeting from Boston. He was in Boston. We're going to get his reaction to what happened in Charlottesville and then talk about what happened today in Boston because if you haven't been paying attention, there was a free speech rally planned at Boston Commons and then there was a counter-protest planned and, and and some stuff happened. I don't I don't think it was to the magnitude of Charlottesville, but I would really like to get his opinion from someone who was on the ground. That's coming up next here on WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Lindsay Gensel filling in for Esme Murphy on this gorgeous Saturday night. Uh, earlier we had on Brady Gervais. She is a uh, employee over at Children's Hospitals, and she organizes the charity runners for the Twin Cities uh, Marathon and 10 Mile, which is something I've been a part of for the last three years. And I, I just signed up for the 10 Mile. I'm super excited. So today I went for a run, and it's gorgeous outside, but running in 80-degree weather is is not my cup of tea. So I'm hoping for much cooler temperatures on October 1st when I uh, I start. I think it starts off downtown. I've only done the marathon before. So it starts off downtown. And then I think the 10 mile goes to like the U of M and crosses over. And then you run along the river, which is my favorite part. And there is nothing better than when you've been training for months and you get up to the top of Summit Hill, and then you get to come down and run towards the Capitol. And finally, they're going to have all of the scaffolding off, and it's going to be brand new and beautiful. And uh, I'm, I know you're not supposed to wish summer away, but I'm, I'm counting down the days until we get to uh, take part in that. That's on October 1st. Our next guest I stumbled upon on Twitter, which seems to be a reoccurring theme tonight that I, I find guests on Twitter. Blake Montgomery is a reporter for BuzzFeed News. Now, I had been paying attention to what was going on in Boston this entire week because they're after Charlottesville, all eyes kind of turned to Boston because there was a free speech rally planned there. And people were wondering if the city was going to follow through on the the permits that they had given to them. And Blake was on the ground and, and he was actually in Charlottesville, too. But first, I want to get to what took place in Boston today. Blake, thank you so much for getting back to me. I really appreciate it. One of my tricks as a, a producer and a host is to track people down on social media because I know every time you get a, a tweet or a buzz, most people's phones buzz instantly. 
<laughs> yeah, you're right, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So um, I stumbled yeah, upon your tweets. And what time did you get into Boston? Uh, I got here last night. I went to this rally this morning at about 930. Um, and at that point, there were no right wingers. There was a serious amount of police. And there were a few counter protesters kind of milling about. Um, the most, I mean, the most exciting thing that happened at 930 was there was like a giant furry dog. It was not happening at that point. And at what point did things start to get a little bit more aggressive? Because I'm looking at a tweet uh, about four hours ago. It turned violent in Boston, heavy clashes between counter-protesters and police. And up until that point, it had seemed to be very quiet. Yeah, so the the clashes that you're talking about... um, took place completely outside of, like, the main scene of what was going on, Boston Common, um, where we saw about 20 right-wingers for this self-proclaimed free speech rally, and, I mean, at least 10,000 counter-protesters in the park itself, and then tens of thousands more by aerial estimates um, outside the park. And after that was kind of over, like... The, the right-wingers left the park around 1 o'clock, and then protesters started, counter-protesters started leaving en masse. And then in the streets of Boston, as those kind of splinter groups of counter-protesters came along, um, there were some clashes with police. I saw tweets of people getting maced. Um, yeah, I mean, this crowd was not, by and large, is not a big fan of police, but in the park itself remained mostly peaceful. Um, so it was a surprise to me as well that like things had kind of taken a violent turn a few hours ago because everything during the park, I mean, it, it was kind of crazy because like tens of thousands of people were there to kind of protest against what they saw as white supremacy, whether that was going on at this rally as a matter of debate. Um, it's kind of crazy that there were tens of thousands of people peacefully demonstrating at that park, and then afterwards things got violent. You would think that things would kind of pop off in a giant crowd in the hot sun. Well, we have seen that, though, in in other events over the last few months, over the last few years, that there seems to be a a small group of people who who push the violence, whether they're Antifa or the alt-left. The majority of the people that show up to either counter-protest or to protest are there to do it civilly to, you know, to practice their right to assemble and are there to, to do it in a, you know, in a manner that's respectful to where they're going. And then there seems to be this small group that in a sense ruins it for everyone else. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair to say that there is a small group that like kind of pushes on the violence. Um, I would say that like the term alt left is, is kind of a misnomer, actually. Um, it's kind of a creation from what, from my reporting and from what I've seen and from talking to like anarchists and communists and socialist activists, um, kind of far lefties in general, they do not identify as kind of the alt left, which like contrast that with the alt right, which is a term coined by white nationalist Richard Spencer, um, in kind of its own branding exercise, whereas the alt, like the term alt left, is meant to equate these leftist activists with kind of the neo-Nazi elements of the alt-right. Um, kind of like in, in the same vein as the president's many side statements to have come under serious fire. Um, it's kind of a branding exercise to get the opponents of the far right on the same moral footing, which 
doesn't really seem to be the case. Like one, um, most people I've talked to kind of don't really equate the genocidal ideology of the, of the alt-right with the ideology of the um, far left. Well, I appreciate the clarification because, I mean, and, and I just, our last guest, we talked about this news cycle and just how exhausting it is. You cover tech oh, and protests much. for BuzzFeed News. And so last week you were in Charlottesville. Today you're in Boston. I, I just saw an update from the Boston police that they report the new total for arrests at 33. I mean, if we're talking mm-hmm. ten to 20,000 people coming out for that, I mean, the, the ratio is, is fairly good. Yeah. So let's go back to Charlottesville because I know you were there um, and I'm looking at your Twitter account and, and you s- the, the title of what you wrote is what here's what's here's what really happened in Charlottesville. Everyone's been talking about this uh, one because of the deaths involved in the protest two because of the mm-hmm. president's first reaction to it and then his second reaction to it. And then, of course, the <laughs> the fallout from that. In the age of social media, it's so easy for something to go viral. I mean, I saw the video of, of the, the car running into the crowd of people almost immediately after it was posted because of it was retweeted into my timeline. I think it's unfair because in those situations, you think that that's exactly what's happening in the entire city. You know, you see one tweet of a, of a person getting maced or um, one tweet of a, a person hitting someone else with a, a baseball bat or burning a flag. And, and you assume the entire event is like that. And that's the challenge of social media is figuring out to, how to be balanced. And, and that's kind of what I took away from your article on BuzzFeed. What really did happen in Charlottesville? Yeah, that's a really, like, astute observation um, that, like, one tweet doesn't really summarize an event or one image. Um, Yeah, like, for example, like, at the time of the car crash, I had, like, dropped off some camera equipment and was looking, actually, to follow um, the American Nazi Party, the National Socialist Movement, um, had been marching, like, just in front of where we were, and we were about to go follow them until kind of the news of this car attack had rippled out from uh, from its locate from its locus, and we heard from kind of distressed people who were walking the same way. Like we just heard there was a car attack. Like there's tons all, at the time at the time of like these when these things happen. There's always some sort of misinformation going around. Like I heard six people had gotten hurt and one was in critical condition. The one person in critical condition turned out to be true, but it turned out but it also turned out that there were dozen. There was like uh, 19 people wounded, I think was the, uh, total count. And so like, it's this rush to kind of figure out like, what is true? Can I talk to someone who is there? Um, yeah. And kind of like a frenzy and a tense, uh, attention in the air of like, what actually happened? Was it as grave as it sounds? Um, because like there was also the question of like, was this intentional? Was this not? Which was quickly confirmed by eyewitnesses of saying like this person backed up, uh, away from the crowd of counter protesters and then like re-accelerated into the crowd. Well, and I know people were very hesitant to call it what it is. It's terrorism. I mean, what happened that day on that side street is domestic terrorism and and you can pretend it's not but that's the exact definition of, of what took place and and people were very hesitant you know maybe it was an accident and and when you're there no one wants to 
to jump the gun because no one, you know, in this era of fake news, this push of everything isn't, you know, everything is exaggerated or it's not true. No one wants to be the one to fall into that trap. Right. And there's a lot of fallout from publishing uh, incorrect information of being like called fake news or kind of losing credibility in that way. Yeah. So what were some of your interactions like in Charlottesville before the car accident happened as things were starting to organize and, and take place? What were some of the things that were said to you? What were some of the, you know, if did anyone give you a reason why they were there? What sort of interactions did you have? Um, like the, the white nationalists I talked to at the protest said things like, we're here to stop the oppression of the white race. Um, we're here to kind of reclaim our country for our people, our people being white people. The crowd also, the crowd of white nationalists was like far and away, mostly men. So it is fair to assume, I guess, that they were saying like, we white men like would like want to be in power. Um, and so like talking, talking to them, they kind of feel this feel that their power is being encroached upon um, by kind of the forces, like whatever forces they see at work in our country. Um, a lot of it has to do with like diversity initiatives, whether that's at a corporate level or um, kind of on the national political stage. Um, and one of the most striking interactions I actually had was with religious leaders who I had not seen um I've not seen, like, a large contingent of religious leaders at protests, like, in... I've been covering them kind of since the election um, as they've, like, erupted across the country. And this was the first time I saw a really large contingent of estimates from religious leaders themselves were that there were, like, 100 to 150 religious leaders from across the South and across denominations. Um, most of them, I would say, were Christian. They were kind of wearing that garb, a lot of, like, black shirts and white collars, the long stole. And a lot of them kind of came out to say that the idea that the ideology of the alt-right, like neo-Nazism, white supremacy, was very counter to uh, what they all believed. I talked to a Unitarian Universalist um, and also someone from the United Church of Christ who were saying, like, white supremacy is evil, is un... Um, I don't think they use the word ungodly, um, but in that, in that kind of vein of saying, like, this is contrary to the principles of, like, faith, hope, and love that we believe in. Um, and there's a really striking picture from that day of when religious leaders, like, linked hands in front of um, the three percenters who are a right-wing militia who has taken... The three percenters have taken pains to say that they are not a white nationalist organization, um, despite the fact that they've been kind of, like, protecting white nationalists at a lot of these right-wing rallies. Um, but... I think at this rally, we're hoping to keep people separate and keep the peace. That was obviously unsuccessful. But anyway, there's a striking image of religious leaders lining up in front of this line of men in bulletproof vests carrying guns, like carrying large guns, like assault rifles and shotguns. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of the very... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to call it besides, like, striking, arresting 
a striking arresting image um, that kind of bespeaks the character of the day. Well, I'm sure that that is something that's common in your world since you've been covering this since the election. Blake Montgomery is my guest. He's from BuzzFeed News. He covers tech and protests. I want to ask you one last question because I kind of got the vibe from following along on Twitter that when you guys send reporters out, you're in a sense sending out a team. And I know you mentioned in Charlottesville you were assigned to follow a certain group of people. How does that work when you're, you're going into something as large as what happened here in Boston? Um, what, what happened here in Boston was a little unique and actually surprising because um, though the rally was dubbed like a free speech rally, no media were allowed to go and videotape it, record it. Um, the recording was all done by kind of the right wingers themselves. I watched a couple speeches on YouTube. I know I saw one person live streaming. Um, I don't think the right wingers themselves would have had the clout to say, okay, Boston, keep out all of these people. I think that was largely an action by police who actually set up a probably hundred foot long demilitarized zone between where the counter protesters were um, and where the 20 right wingers were in the bandstand at Boston comment and did not allow the two groups to interact kind of past, I would say like 1030 um, when the right wingers were kind of allowed into the area that they had a permit for. Um, and that's something I've seen at other protests where police are keeping the peace by separating left and right wing ideologies. Um, does it, does it bespeak something good about like Americans engaging in civil protests in public space cannot play nice? I'm not sure. Um, but it is a way to keep people from being violent because like you would see individual right wingers kind of walking through the crowd of protesters and they would get kind of mobbed by people yelling kind of the classic epithets for Trump supporters for um, people kind of on the far right in that vein. Um, so yeah. what's next for so, you? Do you do you have a next location? Is it already planned out? Uh, yeah, next weekend in San Francisco, actually, where I live, there is going to be a right-wing rally on the ocean. And the next day, there's going to be a right-wing rally in Berkeley. And I've been to Berkeley many times to see this kind of thing. And I'm curious about how this one will be different in the wake of Charlottesville, because in the past, Berkeley police have kind of uh, patrolled one, like the permitted park area to kind of keep, keep the peace. And then in the streets of Berkeley have allowed things to go as they, as they may. And two kind of disastrous effect, it seems. Like there have been street brawls, many injuries, smoke bombs, stopping traffic, um, kind of long-standing fights, or, uh, yeah, long-standing fights between left and right-wingers. So have the stakes been raised by Charlottesville? Undoubtedly, like, what the Berkeley police will gain from that is a, is a question that I'm looking to answer next Sunday. Well, and the UC Berkeley chancellor just declared free speech here at Berkeley, so it'll be interesting to see what happens after Saturday. Mm-hmm. Well, Blake, I appreciate it. Uh, stay safe. Keep doing the great reporting. And uh, we'll look for your stuff Thank next you. Saturday out in San Francisco. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being on with us. Your Wally McCarthy's Cadillac Hummer time check. It is 851. Certified Cadillacs are on sale up to 40% off the original MSRP. You can check out McCarthyAuto.com today. About four minutes left here. On the Esme Murphy Show, of course, I am not Esme Murphy. I'm Lindsay Gensel. I am Chad Hartman's producer, so you hear me Monday through Friday from noon to three. Shameless plug 
for our little uh, what we call the basement of WCCO. We like to have a I, I call it well-rounded fun. We do the serious topics, but we like to goof around and, and talk about our lives outside of this radio station and, and share funny stories and frustrations. And so if you enjoy listening along, we love having you. A couple minutes left here tonight. If you've got a text, 81807, you can give us a call to 651-989-9226. This is my first time hosting on WCCO. I started here back in November of 2015 as a part-time reporter. And to get to be on such an iconic station, I, I mean, we all say we grew up listening to WCCO. In fact, every person I meet, it doesn't matter their age, when I tell them where I work, they go, oh, I grew up listening to WCCO. And then they want to tell you about all the people that they love to listen to. I just hope that they love listening to me now. No. In all honesty, it's been a lot of fun. A couple of texts I didn't get to because uh, our panel in the 7 o'clock hour, I had Kate Raddatz from WCCO-TV and Patrick Donnelly and Colin Hummel, two lovely gentlemen that I've made friends with through the uh, Twitter. If you're on Twitter and you want to follow me, it's at Lindsay Gensel. We were talking about all of our cats. Yes, cats as in plural. I am a self-proclaimed and proud cat lover, crazy cat lady. I have never had more than, well, three because I foster. So full disclosure, if I have a lot of cats, it's because they're getting adopted. So one summer I did have three kittens. I take great pride in naming my cats and I like to name them human names. So I asked, you know, send in your text of your cat's name. And I got this one about an hour ago and I didn't get to it. So I apologize. My girl cat is Ralphie. Originally, my dad's cat, and he couldn't remember all of the multiple cat names and called them all Ralphie. When he died, she became mine, and she's a talker. She's the best. Oh, that's so sweet that you took her in. I love cats that talk. If you, a cat has to have a good personality. Like the one that I just had adopted, I had for 18 months, and his name was Wampus. And we got off to a rocky start. Wampus was a stray that someone found in North Minneapolis, and he had. Some quirks, like for instance, if he wanted you to feed him or he wanted you to do something for him and you were not there to do it or you were not doing it in a timely manner, he would get himself up onto a desk or a dresser and he would knock photos off the wall. So no lie, I would go into the guest bedroom and I could tell when Wampus was upset by how the photos hanging on the wall were positioned. Were they at an angle? Were they not in the place that I left him? Uh, So we had a, you know... A rocky start, a an okay middle. He uh, was a scavenger because he had lived on the streets for so long, so he had to feed himself. So it didn't matter how much we fed him, he would go after whatever was left on the, the cupboard. And we're not talking like meat or if you know, dinner was up there. No, he would eat through the plastic on bread. Or not, he wasn't even going for good food. It was it was just bizarre. But he got adopted, and she loves him, which makes me so happy. And I'm a crazy proud former foster mom because she sends me photos and videos and I squeal in delight over all of them because I'm just so happy he found a great home. Another text we got, Bernie and Jesper, my cats, they sleep at the foot of the bed. I've been teaching Jesper how to talk, just one word. Uh, It's working. uh, He'll sit on the kitchen island and he waits for me. I love that. And then my feline is appropriately named underfoot. Yes, they do get under your feet all the time, especially when there's food involved. 
Oh, gosh. I had such a fun time tonight. I was incredibly nervous. You all made me feel so welcome to the calls, to the texts, uh, to my parents who are listening at home and will probably listen again on the podcast. I appreciate all the times you put up with me. You can listen back to the last three hours of radio at WCCORadio.com. That's it for me tonight. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday evening. See you later. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.